Sam, I think one of the things that's been good about the Helping Musicians podcast is we talk to people at, at quite a few different stages of their career mm. and share their, their wit and wisdom. And today it is time for a legend. Whoa. This man mm. was involved in the early days, I'm not overusing this word, of icons. I am talking Madonna. I am talking Prince. I am talking the Sex Pistols. Wow. We are going to talk for an hour to someone who worked with those iconic artists at the start of their career. And we're going to try and get as many nuggets out of them as possible for you, our dear listener. Enjoy. Oh my God, I thought we were going to go a whole intro without <laughs> saying anything. <laughs> well, Rob, we're going to admit up front our Machiavellian master plan is to mine you for as many nuggets as possible that would help right. a musician at their start of their career in 2023 right. and we thought we would start off with the big one as the human being who was a big part in the early days of artists as iconic as madonna prince pistols what right now in 2023 would be your top three tips for a 19 year old a 23 year old dreaming of making a living from music well there are two things that are the basis of all success and that is a song and a voice that's if you if you analyze you take everything back michael jackson the beatles elvis presley anywhere along the historical parameters of song and a voice i was kind of guilty of bringing the auto tune into in, into play with share with believe where now every everyone has an auto tune on their voice so anything has a distinctive sound to it and of course you go back to the days of otis Redding and sam cook and on the white front joe cocker rod stewart so there is that thing of a voice that's recognizable. As technology improves and improves, voices are less, you know, there's not a new Rod Stewart. There's not a new, those are not coming through. So because technology is not a micro, you know, valve microphone in the studio, it is basically making a voice whatever you want it to be. And people's aims are all the same. So voices are getting very similar particularly if you take the Ed Sheeran phenomenon. You know, there's Ed Sheeran and there's sort of about 12 Ed Sheeran sound-alike, all of whom are successful. But it is that thing of a voice and a song. So you've, got, you've gone straight to one of the big debates that we experience, particularly when we talk to the been there, done that, the people who've had a lot of success in the music industry. Are yeah. you very much in the camp of talent trumps work rate? Where are you on the talent versus work I, divide. I'm 100% on the talent. The, the, the work rate, I mean, one of my big successes was Enya. And, you know, I worked for a corporate major record company. And Enya sold millions of records once we broke it through. And they'd say, well, we're looking at our fourth quarter, we need an Enya record. You know, the, the bosses would tell me, we need an Enya record. And I went, you're not going to get one. It's not how she works. Hmm. You know, it's, it's not like bringing the writers, the producer, and just knock them out, like you know, many are you know, more recently. So, I think you get the longevity when it's all about the talent. And if you if you just look at all the talents that you know that still remain, whether it's a Joni Mitchell or it's you know Sam Cooke, it's it's that thing of they didn't just churn them out; they made them when they were ready. And I think that's the problem, but it is very much the golden goose. And it happened with the Beatles, but it was a different time. It's, you know, you had to have a record every year. And then it happened with Robbie Williams for a while. You have to have a record every year. Now, if you've got a band, it's a lot easier because you've got Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, you've, you know, you've got all of these people contributing to trying to get that work rate up. If you're talking about a solo artist or a solo 
creative force like a Pete Townsend. They can't just do it. And also, first albums are the result of maybe 18 to 22 years of life experience and love and whatever. And then you're successful and you sell 3 million records. And then the record company goes, we want another one within like 12 to 18 months. And you've lived nothing. You've been in TV studios and on the road. You haven't had any life experience. So that's why a lot of, of the second album in Syndrome is it's a failure because there's no life gone into it. I started thinking that pop music was art. I, and when I was running Warners, I banned the word product because people would say, you know, we're going to get any new product from Madonna this year. And I go, no, it's, you know, it's a record, it's recordings, it's music, not product. We don't deal in product. So there are, you know, the Simon Cowell school of thought is the opposite. Uh, it is all about products. It's, and I remember him once when in his early days, Simon Cowell came to see me to ask for advice. And I gave him some advice. He said, this is so kind of you to advise a competitor. And I said, we're not competitive. You know, we're in different businesses. Rob, do you have a definition of a great song? Uh, any definitions get thrown away, really, because if you start defining, you don't get Like a Rolling Stone, you don't get Bohemian Rhapsody, you don't get some of the great songs that, you know, break the mold. But, you know, a song is basically, I mean, if, you, if you're starting out, a song is an intro, um, a verse, a bridge to chorus, a chorus, uh, a verse, a bridge to chorus, chorus, middle eight, and then bridge to chorus, chorus, chorus. That's a traditional song structure. But that then doesn't allow you to have to have a lot of the different forms of great songs. But I'd say 70% of songs, you can probably break down to that. And that goes back to like the old, you know, the 1940s and 50s as well. Thank you for your insights, Rob. Already fascinating. Um, one of the main things we get told by the artists at the start of their career that we work with is this fear of putting out the first song, the debut single, the proper, we're caught, this isn't just a demo, this is the first release, the first song, especially in the social media age. But obviously, if you do that for too long, you can spend a decade and never put anything out. We know countless incredibly talented artists that are so scared of finally putting that debut record out. They've got rid of amazing songs, they've never done anything, and they're still working in coffee shops dreaming of being, you know, a superstar. What's your opinion on putting the first song out? Can your first song be shit and you still have a successful career? There's a thing I found, and you know, very much in retrospect, not at the time, but I found the most successful artists are the ones who believe they're going to be huge, even if they're working in a coffee shop. My first mm. meeting with Madonna, when she'd had one single out called Everybody, which had stiff, that's a good example, pretty average song, mm. came out, it stiffed, and I took over Warner Brothers at the time. And so I met with this artist who'd had one stiff record, and she was being quite difficult for a young, you know, unproven artist. And I said to her, you know, you've really got to play the game at this point. And she's, you know, she didn't turn up for interviews. You know, she's an unknown. And we've, you know, we had her in the UK and she, she cancelled The Face, The Daily Express, a series of periodicals. And I said, and she said, everybody does those. And when I'm the biggest act in the world, they're going to remember I cancelled them. And <laughs> I looked at this girl who had never had a hit. And I, and I just thought, God, she thinks she's going to be the biggest act in the world. And she was. And I, I, when, when, when she was, I kind of thought back to that dinner. And thought, you know, did she know? But there's this belief that people have. I've known a lot of talented musicians who failed, 
because they didn't really believe in themselves. And if you, if you don't want to put a record out, then you don't believe in yourself. One of the most inspiring things, or maybe inspiring is not quite the word, one of the most helpful things for someone at the start of their career now to hear is to hear those examples of icons before they became famous and some of the struggles they went through. So I think you've just told us that Madonna was almost disregarded by her US label and then you took over the baton in the UK. The first single flopped. But how many months, if even a year or two, was Madonna not being successful before it then did blow up? I wasn't there when the first single flopped. I have to, I rushed to point out. Let's get, I, yeah, let's get on the record. I inherited the company after that. So I had everything from that record on. I mean, it took quite a while because Radio 1, in the, those days, Radio 1 was everything for a pop record. Uh, and they didn't play her. They thought she was very much a, a club act. So we went, you know, we, we, we went a lot through the clubs. In fact, they didn't play everybody. They didn't play Holiday. They didn't play Borderline. They didn't play anything until the, the second album and they played Like a Virgin. No, they didn't play Like a Virgin because of the lyrics. So basically <laughs> we, had to, we had to do everything through the clubs. So we did club dates, track dates, all that kind of thing with her. And she's kind of built this club following. So we could put out a 12 inch and we could actually get a chart record. And when she broke through big, when Radio 1 came on board, I, I re-released Holiday when Into the Groove was a hit um, because Frankie Goes to Hollywood had just had a number one and number two record with Two Tribes and Relax. And I thought, I want to do that. I've never done that. When uh, Into the Groove was going to number one, I re-released Holiday. And of course, that went on Radio 2 and Radio 2. And... Um, and then we had a number one and two. So, but, but there was a buzz about that. And she got off on the buzz because, you know, the hip people were kind of tuning into her in the, through the club scene. But she never stopped believing. In fact, I spoke to her manager, Freddie the Man. He had, when he met with her at the beginning, she said, I, you know, when I, I'm looking for a manager, I want the manager who's managed the biggest act in the world. And you're managing Michael Jackson. So, <laughs> you know, she, and he was just so blown away with her kind of self-belief. Yeah, self-belief is a key ingredient. Talent isn't everything. Luck is a huge bit. Self-belief is a, lo a lot of it. And that's why, you know, there's a kind of arrogance to it. You see Robbie Williams, you know, with, I think, limited talent, but <laughs> enormous self-belief, you know, much more than Gary Barlow had or anyone else. And that self-belief kind of drove him to a big career. I think you've just told us that Madonna's first album, we think of it as massive now, but actually it did nothing initially, including Holiday. And it was only when the second album, Singles Off That, started to have some success, you re-released Holiday, and that became massive. How long is there between Madonna signing with Warner in America and finally having that success with a second album led by the UK? She was signed on a 12-inch singles deal. So she wasn't signed on an album deal. They picked up the option to do the out the first album, but she was never signed as like a, a long term artist. But she had such there was such an it's, it, it's hard to describe now because the club scene is is different. But you know it was such a big thing on the club scene. Everything was building and building and building. It just it just needed that last element. And like a virgin, you know, because of her following at that point, she got on top of the pops. You know. Holiday, she got on, I think she got on top of the pops the first time round because the 12 inch of Holiday was huge. 
everything is slightly different now. You know, there was no social media. I think she would have been huge through social media, but there was none of that. There was just, you know, music press and the underground and the whole thing going. And she was remarkable. I mean, she had such a presence. As I said in a recent interview, every act I've ever met changes with success, except for Madonna. She was always a nightmare. You know, she was a nightmare when she couldn't <laughs> sell a record. And she was a nightmare when she was the biggest act in the world. Whereas mostly people graduate up to being a nightmare. And she kind of self-believes <laughs> there's been nothing, there's <laughs> nothing like it. So another icon, Rob, that you were involved with a lot at the start, who, if my research is correct, tells me took a while to get off the ground, which to us now is mind-blowing, is Prince. How long, what, what were some of the early day events with Prince in terms of not, not being the success initially? Again, radio. Radio was, it was with the record company that, you know, that I, in, I took over. So I signed him for music publishing because I, I heard his early demos and I signed him right at the very beginning because I thought this is extraordinary. He was 17. I thought it was extraordinary. And the first record in America didn't do, didn't do that well, but he live, he was electric. I mean, it was, I remember if, if it's the, it's the Sex Pistols Hundred Club quote, if everyone that was at the Lyceum when Prince played there, uh, it would have been like 20,000 people. And there was about <laughs> 75 people at the Lyceum and he did the show of shows. It was just mm -hmm. extraordinary. And again, it just ticked over. And I, I was the publisher. I couldn't control the record company. I just don't think they believed in him. And when America broke him through, and then you saw things like 1999 stiffing and then little red Corvette stiffing. Again, I did that thing. And when we broke, I, then I came in for, for Purple Rain. Uh, and when we broke uh, When Doves Cry, I went back and did a double A side of 1999 with little red Corvette to prove it was a hit record. And it was, it was number two. It went to number two. And just to prove those people that preceded me didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> did you just say that 1999 did not succeed on its first release? Stiff completely. Stiff completely. Everyone wow. remembers it because we re-released re it. Yeah, that's the thing. This is what's so important to realise. Yeah. Some of these huge tunes were only successful a second or third time. Oh, there's many times that's happened, yeah. In circumstances, the planets have to line up to break an act. You have to have everything in line. Luck is a huge part of that. So that's why self-belief is, is really crucial. You know, the luck might not come now, but it might come down the road. So if you don't have the self-belief, you give up and you go back to the coffee shop. If you do have the self-belief, you just continue making the music. But you do need something around you. Prince's manager and Warner Brothers in America were really supportive. And you need to see him play to know that it was a matter of time. There's two levels. There is this thin level of, you know, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, the Stones, Michael Jackson, Madonna. There's that thin thing. And then there's all the successes. You know, you, you've got to look at, you've got the reality is, to be successful, it'll be Arcade Fire or the 1975. You know, that's, it's not Prince and it's not going to be forever. But that's, that's going to be what you set your sights on. And then if you have that extra talent, that talent boosts you into the upper level. But there's, you know, a phenomenal career to be made in that next level. Um, Terence Trent Darby, you know, there's, there's millions of very famous people who had great careers. Um, 
and success and made a lot of money. Um, so you can't think I'm going to be the next Prince or next Madonna. But if you do, that's fantastic too. You mentioned Prince. I think you said he signed the first album at 17. It'd be interesting to know how old he was when he started having big hits. And then my this might be too geeky, this question, but do you know off the top of your head an iconic song that everyone would know, which got re-released, say, three, four, five times before it finally actually became the massive success we now know? The top of my head, aha, uh-huh, take on me. Okay, how many how many times was that released? Three. <laughs> three. Wow. Three before it was successful. And three videos. And it was the third video. <laughs> Again, it's, it's circumstances. MTV, you know, pre-YouTube, MTV was all-powerful. And then yeah. MTV didn't like the first couple of videos. And then they loved the third video. So everybody released it three times. Because once that video came in, which was probably nine months after the initial release that video was made and that video broke the record any others off the top of your head or we'll get back to prince and then we'll let sam jump in uh they should be but you're talking to an old man well we might come (laughs) back to it but that's a that it's so it's so inspiring for someone to hear and i keep saying the word iconic but i think the word iconic is correct for madonna for aha for um prince to hear these sure. songs that I'm not sure. Aha. The Aha song is iconic. <laughs> ha- a holiday like. was twice. And nineteen ninety-nine was twice. Nineteen ninety-nine was twice, yeah. Little Red Little Red Corvette was twice. Sam, I feel like we should do a summary. So nineteen ninety-nine and holiday both took two releases, and Aha's take on me took three releases. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure there's others. Uh, I mean, I think you can call me hours was a long time coming. I think it came out and then Again, it was, we were in the video years and the You Can Call Me Owl video changed everything. That doesn't <laughs> exist anymore because you can see any video you want at any time. In the days where you just had to watch MTV or the chart show or whatever, then videos were everything. And they were very memorable, of course, in those days. And Prince, that gap between him signing and, and blowing up? Uh, in America, not that long, I'd say maybe two years. Here, probably five six we were we were slower <laughs> right we sam were, we, we were criminally slower criminally slower <laughs> rob so quite a lot of the themes of the stories you've told so far are about a mixture of kind of cliches like thinking outside of the box you know not letting people <laughs> say no and going around <laughs> it <laughs> um and I'm about- admitting their cliches don't worry um but in 2023 you know we've got all these new access routes for a new musician right whether it's social media the fact you can message almost anyone you want now streaming all these new ways for new artists to get their music out there what do you think is like the counterculture the idea that the things that pe- new artists aren't doing, if everyone's uploading to streaming, if everyone's using Instagram, do you, does anything spring to mind as like, would be the equivalent of all of these stories you've just told of like bringing Madonna through the clubs rather than radio? Like what's the equivalent for nowadays? Does anything spring to mind? Well, there's still, I, I still think playing live, if you're a band, mm. playing live is everything. Because, you know, mm. there's, and, and, do, you know, do you know a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers? Um, yes. Malcolm Gladwell. It's yeah. yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called Outliers. Yeah, and it's it's basically how how things happen. Like it's Steve Jobs and um, and the Microsoft guy Bill 
thing. Dates. And it's the Beatles. It's the fact if you do what you're doing for 10,000 hours, yep. you will succeed. The Beatles had Hamburg. You know, they were playing probably seven hours a day for a couple of years. So they honed their abilities where now you come, you know, you, you go from writing a song at home to doing a rough demo, you know, on, on a computer to having a record deal. So there's, there's not a lot of time to develop. Either if you've got band members, that helps. If you've got a great A&R person, that helps. Because, you know, something needs to be channeling. Because when you write a song, it's a bit like saying to someone with four children, who's your favourite? And the answer is always, I have no favorites. Well, that when the songwriter writes a song, it's their children. So they think they're all great. So you need somebody, you know, whether it was, that was the Lennon-McCartney balance, or you have an A&R person goes, that's great. That really isn't very good. You need somebody you trust that you have, a, you know, similar thought processes to that can edit you, basically. So the danger of today is everyone sitting at home making music. There's no filters. In the old days, you couldn't make a record unless you got a record deal because recording studios were expensive. So there was an initial filter was before you could make a record, you had to get signed. And that kind of knocked out a lot of the, you know, the rubbish. But now you can have rubbish and it can be on, on Spotify. It's looking at how do I get filters that will help me create. You know, it's not criticism that's negative. It's, it's that help with creativity is You've got three children and two of them are hooligans and one of them is great. You know, spend the time with a great one. The hooligans are lost, you know. That's what it is. <laughs> but to you, they're my children. They're all fabulous. It's either you have that self-critical streak or you use an outs a third party. I would also just, well, while it's in my head, there are two things that everyone should have knowledge of or own a copy of. A rhyming dictionary. <laughs> um, really crucial. You're mm. laughing. It's really crucial. And the other thing is to watch the video of Access of Awesome, which I assume you've seen. It tells you so much about music and songwriting and production in one funny four-minute video. So Access of Awesome, an Australian band, and they basically show that 20 of huge hit records all had the same chords. Major, major, minor, major, you know, major chord into major chord into minor chord into major chord and repeat it. And that underlies probably 50% of hit songs. And then the actual chords used, that's why Access Awesome is a great learning thing because it's the same chords, you know, but that pattern of major, major, minor, major will give you the basis to write a hit song. And a rhyming dictionary will give you the basis to get some interest in words. And not just, you know, love you, baby. <laughs> who needs who needs AI? Yeah, let's get the books out. <laughs> just get the books out um, and the Aussie and the Aussie video YouTube's out. I, I mean, I t I teach at Berkeley College of Music. I teach A and R, and mm. they always ask me, you know. And I've done it, I've done it in England and now in Berkeley. I've done it for twelve years, and I, every year I'm asked, "Do you think a computer can write a hit song?" And every year I say no. And now I, I think, yes, because everything is so formulaic. You know, the beats are certain beats, the, the structure of the songs are, you know, identifiable. Um, streaming means you don't have to have lots of choruses. 
uh, intro should be the hook. You know, lots of things that I could, you know, I could put together a song quite easily. So AI will just take in all of the last hundred top 10 records and then write you a hit easily, easily. It's what Sam's hoping. Still holding <laughs> on to that dream to be a pop the star. The pop dream. <laughs> I think that's the apocalypse, not the pop dream. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I promised I didn't pay Rob to pay that, Sam. Yeah. Uh-huh. Rob, I'm going to ask you one question twice. That's not a complete contradiction. The incredibly talented musicians that you have worked with who have realized their potential and the incredibly talented musicians you've worked with who have not realized their potential. Have you seen reoccurring patterns amongst the talented musicians who have realized their potential? And have you seen reoccurring patterns amongst the talented musicians who have not realized their potential? Yes. Um, that's the answer to the first question. No, the second, the answer to the other first question is <laughs> it's funny i had a uh, i had a dinner with chris blackwell of island records and we ended up spending the whole dinner talking about our noble failures there are two kinds of failures there's the embarrassing failures you go i wish i'd not done that i wish i'd never done any of that and there are the noble failures we go you know what i think i'd do that again because <laughs> i really believed because sometimes you sign an act to make money and sometimes you sign an act to make music so we were talking about our failures and you know it started with jess roden which you know who chris not only signed but managed and i saw it you know i saw him when i was 15. he was in a band called shakedown sounds and he was in a band called bronco on ireland and he was everything rod stewart is he was like a mod he had the fabulous he used to they used to sing james brown covers in his first band and that's how we started but my two are Terry Reid, who is incredibly famous for not being famous. I mean, he turned down, Jimmy Page asked him to be the singer of the New Yardbirds, later Led Zeppelin. Uh, he turned it down because he was going on tour with the Stones in America. And he was only, I think, 19 at the time. And, uh, and then he said, well, if you want to sing it quickly, there's this guy called Robert Plant who's in this band called Band of Joy. And he said, check out the drummer. He's great too. And that was Robert Plant and John Bonham. So Terry Reid told Jimmy Page oh. to go and see this band. That, that put that together. He then was offered lead singer of Deep Purple. He turned that down. He's a phenomenal singer. Again, he can go from the sweetest, gentlest voice to a, a rock and roll roar. I always felt terrible that he never made it. He was managed by Mickey Most in the in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he played guitar, played great guitar. He hired David Lindley before Jackson Brown to, to be to be in the band. And Alan White was his drummer. So after Enya was incredible, you know, the first Enya record that we did sold 15 million. You get this feeling when you're an A&R person, you get this feeling when you have an enormous success that you have a golden touch. And you sort of need a failure to bring you back to earth. And so I had Enya, and it was so successful. I thought, anything I do, I'm going to make Terry Reid successful. I made a record, and I had great producers and great songs. And still, I, I loved the record. He never believed in himself. He, he, was, he wasn't broken by his history, but he just he'd lost his belief in himself. And I saw that working closely with him. And when it didn't happen, I, I thought, that's that's what you've learned, Rob. After all these years, you've learned that you didn't believe. 
And the other one was Helicopter Girl, which when I had an independent company and she was Mercury Music Prize nominated. We got a review in the Times. It was almost a full page saying how this, you know, this extraordinary talent helicopter girl. When it didn't happen, I was heartbroken. I couldn't speak for three days. I was so upset. She was fine. She was, she was, oh, well, well, we had a good go. And I thought, no, no, I'm feeling broken. And you're feeling like, oh, well, we had a go. That goes back to my first point is self-belief because that will make things happen. And I don't know Jess Roden, but I just feel he didn't think he was Rod Stewart. You know, he didn't think that Rod Stewart always thought he was fabulous. You know, so that's what makes it happen. So amongst the talented artists who do realise their potential, what, if any, reoccurring patterns have you seen? There's uh, two different patterns. There's one, I know I'm fabulous. I've proved (laughs) it. I've done what I wanted to do and it's worked. Therefore, I can continue without any opinions. In that thing, I've got maybe Phil Collins. Well, you start getting a formula that is incredibly successful, and then you don't ever try and do it. And, you know, in her younger days, Madonna was the opposite. Madonna is I'm incredibly successful. I'm going to change. I'm going to, you know, she was, she is the perfect pop star. I, you know, as she gets older, she's lost that that skill but you know she was doing records when the record you know, her record company was america and the record company was you know after like a virgin she was produced by Noel rogers and then she went off i think with shep pettibone and then they went no no Noel rogers gave you your biggest hit record why are you with these different people and it's like well i've done that you know and, and that's why she continued to stay on top whereas some superstars you know, had three or four albums and then it's like, well, I've got, I've got Phil Collins albums. I don't need a new one. She always put that through to being fresh or successful, but success, you can't say Phil Collins wasn't successful. He was extraordinarily successful. But then how many people have got the last two albums? You know, that's the thing. Uh, and one of the things I had with Enya, you know, when I, once I left Warner's, she was on her own and she repeated the formula. And we were having, just before I left, we had certain arguments. I said, we've done this formula. We now need to sort of bring in different elements. And they didn't. They just continue with the formula. And the sales dropped away. You know, Madonna is the inspiration. It's what I did with Cher. I said, you know, we've made a record for the Cher formula and it didn't work. So let's change what we're doing. And that's when we did the Believe album. It's, you know, it's that thing of let's make you different because everyone knows what a share record is going to sound like. Let's surprise them. And that's what we did with the Believe album. It surprised people. And, you know, and she's such a great artist that she can pull it off. I mean, she didn't believe she could at the beginning. We argued for nearly a year about making that record. A few moments ago, Rob, you talked about the importance of A&R. And one of the main questions we get again, with musicians that start their career is they're completely on, on their own. You know, they might have bandmates, they might have friends, but they don't have a proper team around them of any capacity yet. They always want to know what is the first proper teammate I should have, whether that is a friend or whether that is a professional, whether it is a manager, whether it is a plugger, whether it is an A&R, record label, et cetera, et cetera. In your opinion, in 2023, 
do you think A&R is the first thing that an artist should be looking for when the songs are good and they feel they're ready? You know, to me, I would only sign with someone if I was an artist, if I felt that person was on my wave level and could teach me something. And the A&R person is kind of your guardian through, because a plugger will say, you know, we'll give you all the wrong advice because they just want the easy route to make a record. You know, make the record and let a plugger do what he does. Don't involve them in the making of the record. Um, but you know, with marketing, with a photo session, your A&R person is your friend inside the walls, you know, and that's a key relationship. And when I've A&R'd people, I, you know, it's very hard when you run the company to actually side with the artist. But again, back to the Enya example, and when the bosses said, we need an Enya album in the fourth quarter, I'm the one saying, you're not going to get one. I'm not the one <laughs> getting on her case and saying, come on, you can do it, you can do it. You've got you've got an A and R person, but you feel it's like meeting anyone. When you meet, you know, either for a partner or for you know a group of people, you immediately go, "I really like them." I kind of feel immediately I've got a, a, a relationship with them. So I think it's really important. But the other thing, of course, is the deal. Mm. The, you know, you someone offers you five times what another person offers you, but you like the original A and R man. You really should go with the original Man and Armour, mm. but you'd be crazy to because, you know, the insurance of the other one. Um, so that becomes a difficult thing, and that's where a manager comes in to actually mm. sort of bounce off the business side against the artist side. This is going to sound like a bit of a obvious or loaded question, but from reading quite a few of your interviews, I can tell it's something that you think is quite important, Rob. The importance of your A&R or manager being honest with you rather than telling you what you want to hear and hmm. oh darling energy from the A&R to the manager or the manager to the A&R sorry for the artist either from their manager or from the A&R oh, the team the around truth. you not being yes men and yes women telling you the yeah. truth telling you that song is shit that bridge is out of key <laughs> rather than a darling it's wonderful again it's like the psyche of someone I can say, you know, Phil Collins is a great artist, but Phil Collins fired his producer after, you know, two or three multi-platinum albums because he went, well, I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, and Mick Hucknall fired each member of Simply Red because, you know, it's that thing, I don't, you know, the drummer was his best friend at school, but he was a very good drummer. He wasn't a great drummer. And so Mick got rid of him, but he was one of the few people to say to Mick, that's shit. There's a film called That'll Be The Day with David Essex and Adam Faith where they get rid of the band because the band are kind of either not good enough or they're telling the truth. So you surround yourself with people and tell you it's all good. I used to tell people what I thought. I have an Asperger's thing of, I can lie about anything, but I can't lie about my opinion of music. I, and I tell my students, learn from me because I always told the truth. It's the wrong thing to do. When an artist, a successful artist, asks you their opinion, they want you to like it. They don't want your opinion. And I, you know, time and time and time again, I've fallen at that hurdle. You know, and mm -hmm. you know, artists get upset with you um, mm -hmm. because they don't want to hear the truth. And then you see their career fail, and you think, if only they'd listened. Successful artist psyche is an incredible fragile thing all, all the young new musicians that are 
listening to this, they don't understand because until you're there, um, you don't know who you will be. Because you think, well, I'm not going to change. But as I said, the only one who didn't change was Madonna. It, it's that thing. They don't want to hear the truth. And it's how you can then get it through to them. The cliche I used to say is, I don't want you to do what I'm telling you to do. I want you to listen to why I'm telling you. And then you make your own decision. Uh, it's not like do this or we, you know, we're going to pull out all our support. It's really, can you listen? I remember once in the Jesus and Mary chain and we, we, we were in a meeting and, it, and I said, hold on, hold on. You're making all the mistakes that Echo and the Bunnymen made. And I'm not saying I can guide you through the field, but the field is full of minds and I know where most of them are. I don't know where they all are, but I know where most of them are. And if you just wander in there, you're going you're gonna to blow yourself up. So I've seen fans. I mean, I think it was Orson Welles who said, uh, there's no such thing as experience. You just fuck up more than anyone else. And, <laughs> and that's what it is. You, you learn by either your own or other people's mistakes you've been involved with, and you don't make them. Any examples spring to mind of when you did tell an artist something was shit and they got pissed off at you, but then two weeks later they listened and they changed it. And now we now know that song because of that. Famously, Rod Stewart, he made a couple of albums in America that were very AOR, boring records. And he said to me, you know, why am I not selling anyone in the UK and Europe? And I said, because you're a good singer of good songs and a great singer of great songs. And you haven't recorded a great song. And I, and I got him to do Downtown Drain. And that changed everything. He went top five in America. He, he had the cover of, the Ro of Rolling Stone for the first time in about 12 years. Um, wow. It suddenly made him hip again because I said, if you keep making these AOR records, you know, it's, you're gonna, your sales going to drop off. Um, and then he did that. And we did a few other songs together with big hits. Um, so it's not like don't do that. There's little things, but like I ended up mixing Orinoco Flow by, by Enya because Enya. there was a bit of it that really irritated me. And so I went <laughs> down to the mix and just pulled the faders down every time it came in. It's funny because the, the, the master tape has Rob's mix written on it, which is probably infuriates the producer. Quite right. <laughs> he did a fabulous, he did a fabulous job. It says Rob's mix. Uh, and a, a, a quick story is that um, when we were making Crazy with Seal, Trevor Horn producing, uh, Trevor Horn, who takes forever to do anything, uh, and so he <laughs> spends all this money, he makes this, makes this fabulous mix. And I said, oh, I think the chorus should come in again at the end. So we put the chorus back at the end. And Seal came in to hear it. And he goes, I don't like it. I really don't like it. It's not. And we went, but it's, it's pretty much there. I mean, it's, and he goes, I just don't like it. So for two weeks, an enormous cost, Trevor remixed and remixed and remixed and remixed. And then two weeks after he started this, Seal comes in by chance, not on an appointment. He's just in the, in the studio. He comes down the studio and Trevor and I are sitting there and Trevor's going, well, let's play. I, I've lost my way. Let's play the original mix. So he puts up the mix that we liked and Seal comes in and he sits, he stands at the back and he goes, that's the one. <laughs> it was the same mixes. 
And that's, wow. you know, that's kind of, that's, that's what example. you have to deal with. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had a nice Adele story. Um, because my nephew, who worked for me for 14 years, when I retired, he became a manager and he, the second thing he signed was Adele. He was 18 at the Brit School. And um, and then they worked together. He A and R'd and manager right through the initial success. Then she had a baby, and she wrote an album, like a love song to this baby, a whole album. And she tells this story live, so I'm, you know, it's not inside story. Um, and she played it to Jonathan, and she said, "Oh, you know, here's my new album." And he went, "I don't think so." And and <laughs> and she said, "So." This is the one song that remained, and then she plays the song. There's the one song that remained from from the album I wrote for my my son. But it's again that relationship where he could actually go, I don't think so, and she'd mm-hmm. respect it. So that's a manager, but he's also he grew up it's through A and R. So that's it's a, it's a it's a it's another thing of that relationship. If you can have a manager who's an A and R person, that's phenomenal. I mean, he's done incredibly well with Rex Orange County as well. There's a lot of insight in a lot of the stories and well, just the insight that you have shared, Rob. Um, as we start to wrap this up, something I'm curious is, if someone asks you the question, what's the top one piece of advice you give to musicians? Is there a one thing, not relevant to success, not relevant to being a better musician, just like, is there an answer from you of what you think is the one piece of advice that musicians need to hear? It's a, it's a horrible bit of advice. It's It's... It's don't be that likable. I think it's my advice. I'd say it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's just the, um, all the artists I really loved never made it. As people, not as musicians. But the ones I, you know, I actually that's unfair to say because like Suggs and I are still friends, you know, when I, since I sort of signed Madness many years ago. And Suggs and I are friends to this day, and you know I love him, and um, and he made it. So no, it's just it's it's something that you know, I used to say kind of cynically is the trouble is I like them too much, you know. Mm. It's, it's that thing, but again, it's that it's that blinkered thing of you're not very likable when you're so blinkered about yourself. Is believe in yourself and but read books and listen to music. I mean, I was making a record once and there was a 12-string guitar and I said, you know that bit in Chestnut Mare by the birds? And the guitar player and all of the band and everyone looking at me going, what? And I went, there's no one in this studio. I looked at the engineer and there's no one know Chestnut Mare by the birds. And it's that thing, like, soak yourself in music. Just listen to everything. Read stories about it. I used to give every A&R man a, a book called Mystery Train by Grill Marcus which is everything you need to know about American music in one book, in short story. And another great book is Revolution in the Head, which is how every Beatles track was made, how they recorded and you know every single Beatles track. And those two books at least give you a, an idea of, you know, when George Martin asked the cello players on Eleanor Rigby, the cello players complaining that the microphone was so close to the string because cellos are always recorded slightly ambiently. But he put the right, so you get, you get that drive of the cello on Ellen Rigby. And to read all the stories about all those kind of things, you know, if you weren't there, it puts you there. And I think wow. whenever you can do that in music, and that's listening and reading, but it's 
stop be narrow in your focus be wide in your education i think that might be the one liner to end it on i think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> boom mic that's drop. Mic dro- that's the uh, rob dickens mic drop might have been put, <laughs> put a sound effect on at the end <laughs> yeah.